Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast or the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Charlie Conway. He's the Chief Scientific Officer of Biohaven Pharmaceuticals. And we're going to talk about uh, his work there. So, Charlie, thank you for coming. Great. Thanks, Richard. Really a pleasure uh, to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, tell me a little bit of background on yourself and then how you came to Biohaven and what Biohaven's working on. Sure. So, uh, my background is in neuroscience, which means I studied the brain. So, I started in grad school. I studied brain development and how um, age-related changes in the brain affected the pain system. And my dissertation work systematically uh, characterized maturational changes. That is, I showed that young animals have exaggerated responses to pain compared to adults, and that's because they have excessive pain connections and fewer inhibitory mechanisms. And what was really interesting was I showed that that change matures in a top-to-bottom fashion, a head-to-toe fashion. So interesting that there are some ages where the upper half of the body is adult-like. That is, it's it's responding in the same way with uh, uh, less uh, exuberant responses, but the lower half is still like a newborn. And then at a later age, it's all adult-like. So uh, that's kind of how I started uh, in grad school. And my dissertation research led me to the uh, postdoc at the UC San Diego uh, Anesthesiology Research Lab, uh, where I worked with Tony Oksh. And um, out of that experience, uh, I went into the pharma industry and uh, led the research program for this new thing called CGRP, which uh, I began uh, work almost uh, over 20 years ago, actually back in 2000, uh, 20 years ago, started working on this. 
All right, so that's what Biohaven's working on today is CGRP, and, and what is it? What's it about? Sure. So um, for a long time, the basic understanding of migraine just wasn't there. Most treatments for migraine were borrowed from other diseases like epilepsy because it has to do with overactive uh, brain uh, cells and, and, and nerve cells. And so something that could sort of tamp that down was thought to be beneficial, but it really wasn't targeted therapy. So this is one of the first truly targeted therapies. So science and medicine have shown that the trigeminal nerve is the culprit in, in migraine that is overactive. And when it's overactive, it releases CGRP. And this molecule, this brain uh, chemical CGRP, is the short name. The long name is calcitonin gene-related peptide. And when that happens, it changes the way the brain responds to input, and it makes the brain uh, hyperexcitable. So people who have uh, migraine experience really disabling uh, attacks that last from four hours to three days with symptoms like pulsating headaches, nausea, vomiting, hypersensitivity to light and sound. And it's not just like a bad headache. It's really very disabling. And there are about 40 million people in the U.S. that suffer from migraine, and it affects about uh, 15% of the, of the U.S. Uh, population, and it's three times more frequent uh, in, in women uh, than in men. And so, yeah, did, uh, bio, go ahead. Oh, did you, any learnings from your old research, which sounds somewhat similar, you know, about young animals getting overexcited and overstimulated? Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting because, how? yeah, because early on, you know, it was thought that uh, these age-related differences, uh, actually, there was some misconception that the age-related differences meant that the undeveloped uh, brains weren't fully able to appreciate pain, a uh, full pain state. That was called the Canard principle back in the 1950s for a researcher, Margaret Canard. And she came up with that principle because she saw that when young animals suffered an accidental brain injury, there was often no difference in adulthood. That is, the brain compensates. And so she proposed this Canard principle that uh, young mammals with undeveloped brains uh, don't consciously appreciate pain. Unfortunately, this led to a, a bad practice of, of uh, performing procedures on uh, young uh, newborns, infants uh, with little or no pain management. For example, circumcision, something you'd never, ever think of doing in an adult. So, you know, my work and the work of many others showed that this was wrong, that if anything, the younger uh, have a more need of effective pain management. And so the connection there was, it, I was studying a hyperexcitable state that developed into a more mature state. And so migraine is also a hyperexcitable state. So I agree there's a connection there. So where does the trigeminal nerve run? What is, you know, if I look at a person on the outside, where is it running? Yeah. So if you look at the outside and you kind of uh, go like to the back of the jaw, this is kind of where the brainstem is. It's like deep in the center of the brain and it's bilateral. There's one on each side. And that's where the cell bodies are. But nerve cells are like uh, the tiniest, skinniest water balloons you could ever think of. That is, a whole cell can stretch for inches and inches across the body. So a single cell with its cell body in the brainstem can send up uh, fibers that connect to the dural outer covering of the brain. And so that's where the inputs are. And then the outputs are in, in the brainstem in the caudal nucleus. So, okay, so you can never palpate the trigeminal nerve or put pressure on it or anything from the outside of the body, right? That's correct. That's correct. You wouldn't be able to. Well, I mean, what about a head position? You know, if your neck stretches or your, you know, your neck moves in a certain way, I mean, wouldn't that affect the nerve innovation, either compromise well, it or facilitate it? Yeah, so it's true, a basic principle that when you're having a migraine attack, activity exacerbates uh, the problem. Lowering your head also exacerbates uh, the problem. 
So there is some connection to sort of body position, uh, head position, but it's more the consequence of making the symptoms worse in the event that an attack uh, is happening as opposed to being the uh, initiating event of the attack. Okay, so now that you know about the, uh, the functioning of the trigeminal nerve, what, what happens? It just, it, does it get down-regulated or up-regulated? I, I would guess up. And that's why everything yeah. seems like too bright, too loud, too intense. So what we know is that when the trigeminal nerve is activated, it releases this brain chemical called CGRP, and it releases it in three places. It releases it in the dura, that's the tough outer covering of the brain. And when it does that, it makes the inputs to the trigeminal nerve hyperexcitable. It releases CGRP right around the cell bodies, and that also leads to what's called a neurogenic inflammation, which is just a fancy way of saying it makes the nerves themselves hyperexcitable to producing an action potential, which is how it sends a signal. And then the third thing is um, when CGRP is released in the brainstem, it causes the postsynaptic neuron, the nerve that's receiving the signal, to respond in an exaggerated way. So those three things together are part of this excitatory uh, symptomatology, but it leads to actually what we think is changes deeper in the brain, that is in the thalamus, which is like the sensory relay station um, of, of the brain. And we say that because it's not just the pain signals that come from the trigeminal nerve, it's sensitivity to light and sound, uh, nausea. Uh, also, people have hypersensitivity to taste and smells. So, you know, it's a more general uh, thing. And so what was happening is that exaggerated trigeminal nerve activity is actually changing the response properties uh, deeper in the brain. So why would the trigeminal nerve produce the CGRP? What's the, the reasoning behind it, you think? Sure. So all pain-sensing fibers contain calcitonin-related peptide, or CGRP. And it's just part of the signal that occurs when you've got persistent uh, pain. If you have just an acute pain state, like if you prick your finger, that releases excitatory amino acids like glutamate and aspartate. But if you have ongoing uh, a high frequency uh, activity, that's where the peptide CGRP gets released. And it's a signal of, of hyperexcitability, or it's a signal of having a sensory input being in overdrive. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Now the quandary here is while we know that CGRP gets released during a migraine attack, we really don't know what the triggering event is. That is the triggering event is not the same thing for all people. So for some people, a migraine uh, trigger is stress uh, and, you know, stress related to the pandemic only exacerbates their migraine disease. Um, for others, it can be foods and, and different things. And so lifestyle changes are recommended and, uh, you know, new treatments are, are coming to be. So the, the function of CGRP is what, when there's pain for the body to recognize it and do something about it as a warning signal or what's its exactly. biochemical function? No, exactly. And so usually pain is your friend, right? Because it warns you of impending tissue damage or injury. Uh, it becomes maladaptive or not helpful 
when it's going on constantly, even in the absence of any uh, injury or stimulus that you need to avoid. And that's the situation um, in my... What happens when you study normal pain? Like if I, you know, if someone bites my finger and it hurts, uh, will my CGRP be upregulated just in the vicinity of my finger or is it in multiple spots in my body? Yeah, so when it comes to like your finger, that has the same kind of a sensory input and it sends a signal to the spinal cord. If it's a brief pain, it's just uh, the fast acting transmitters, which are like aspartate and glutamate. If it's a persistent pain state, it's the, the slow depolarizing uh, effects of something like CGRP. And what ha- the difference is this. When it's a, acute pain, it's a one-to-one. So think of a, like a pinch sends one signal. But when it's a persistent pain, the signal that happens at the level of the spinal cord and up to the brain can be like one to ten. So give me, let me give you an example. If you whack yourself on the thumb with a hammer, when you whack it, it hurts like heck. But the next day, if you happen to walk by a table and you brush your thumb on the table, that brushing of the thumb also hurts like crazy. Well, that's normally not a painful thing. So normally it's not painful to lower your head. Normally it's not painful to have bright lights, but after this exaggerated CGRP release, it changes the response properties and puts you in this hyperexcitable state. So this response is more reminiscent of a, of a chronic pain response, but it happens acutely and suddenly, which is strange. Yeah, it's unpredicted. Uh, people, some people get like a visual sensation or a visual disturbance. It's called an aura. They know it's coming on. And, um, you know, if you talk to physicians, what they've uh, said to their patients is, you know, it's really best to take something as soon as possible, as soon as you know that something's coming on. Because the longer you wait and let it sort of build up, the harder it is to to control. So uh, does this give you any insights into why migraines happen? Has anyone figured out why they happen and what, what are the multiple factors that cause them? So, I mean, we know there's a genetic component. For example, if you have one parent that has migraine, you have a higher likelihood of, of having migraine. If you have two parents that have migraine, you, you have an even higher, greater likelihood of having migraine. So, you know, what we can say is there's definitely a genetic uh, a family-related component. What we don't know is, you know, why or what's different about those. What we also know is if you measure the baseline levels of CGRP, so let's say that you are not a migraine sufferer and I'm a migraine sufferer. If we compared the plasma levels of CGRP between you and non-migraine sufferer and me, then my CGRP levels all the time are somewhat higher. And so it's kind of like I'm closer to the edge of throwing the switch that leads to the migraine attack um, all the time. Oh, so people with my, people that get migraines, they're constantly in this state of ready to produce CGRP when other people, they need, they have a much higher threshold, let's say. Is that accurate? That's right. That's right. That's right. So what, I mean, what are like some of the precursors that make CGRP or, you know, has anyone, again, really looked into what could be causing this? Why, why is their set point different from other people? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, you're really talking about science that has yet to evolve. You know, the big dramatic thing that's evolved over the past uh, 30 years is that instead of having therapies that were targeted at other disease states, now we have CGRP-specific therapies. So we've got anti-CGRPs, and there are kind of two groups of those. One are oral. These oral anti-CGRPs block the receptors, like putting tape over a keyhole. The key can't get in the hole if there's tape in it, right? And so those G-pants, the, uh, like uh, Nurtec is an example of that, Nurtec ODT, 
it's an oral CGP receptor antagonist. It's been shown to be effective in the acute treatment of migraine. There are also a class of anti-CGRPs that are injectable. These injectable anti-CGRPs are monoclonal antibodies. And so they circulate in the body and they work in one of two ways. There's one uh, that also blocks the receptor. And then there's three that act more like a, a sponge to soak up the circulating CGRP so that it can't get to the receptor. And so those treatments are new targeted treatments. And what's been exciting in this space is we've shown now that the treatments are effective for both acute treatment of migraine as well as preventive treatment of migraine. And that's important because in the past, there's never been sort of a unified hypothesis that could explain migraine. We have one set of agents for acute treatment and a different set of agents for preventive treatment. So for example, the triptans, 20, uh, almost 30 years ago in 1992, the first triptan was launched. And that was the mechanism of action uh, was a serotonin 5-HT1B1D agonist. And what we didn't know at the time, but we know now is one of the properties of that is it actually inhibits the release of CGRP. So it may be that most of the functionality of the triptans are actually acting through their secondary effect on, on CGRP. The problem with the triptans is they're active vasoconstrictors. So if you're a patient who has a history of cardiovascular events uh, or a condition or a procedure, then you are someone who actually shouldn't be taking a triptan. So the beauty of the anti-CGRPs is you get all the benefits of the triptan without the side effect profile or the, or the baggage uh, of the triptans. When, when people get migraines, can they sense it's coming? Or is there only a subset of people that can? Other people yeah. it's like, oh no. You're... So there actually, there are two different diagnoses. Um, so one is called, you know, migraine. The other one's called migraine with aura. And so in about 40% of people, they get this sensation that something's coming. They get this aura. And for a lot of those people, it's a visual sensation. There's a change in their visual field or actually an abnormality in their visual field uh, that they can see. And, and others have different experiences, but can also sense that there's an attack coming on. So I guess the uh, the preventative, if used by people that can sense it's about to hit them, as long as they're qualified, they don't have you know high blood pressure or other heart ailments. Can they use these triptans in that way? Just you know, they start to feel uh, something's gonna you know they're gonna have a migraine. They take it right then and it prevents them, or do they have to take it just every day chronically, just like as a medicine, regular medicine? Yeah. So the triptans were only ever approved for the acute treatment of migraine. They were never approved for the preventive treatment of migraine. So that class of agents um, is uh, is one of the reasons that it led to sort of this bifurcation in how we thought about uh, the disease. That is, we thought about the disease in, in two ways. That is, you know, that if people, you know, had, you know, attacks that came on that needed to be aborted, then we called those people, you know, some people who need acute treatments. If they had high frequency or ongoing attacks that were so debilitating, then we thought of those people as, you know, needing preventive treatments. But that led, unfortunately, to the idea that there's a disease, you know, called episodic migraine that needs acute treatments, and there's a disease called chronic migraine that needs preventive treatments. But that was only because those are the only tools we had at the time, right? So there's this long history of thinking about migraine as two different things, when actually now science has advanced. And with our new scientific understandings, we realized that the underlying physiology is not different. That is, people who need acute treatments aren't fundamentally different from people who need preventive treatments. It's just the tools that we've had in the past could only do one thing or the other. And so the dramatic thing that's coming forward that's changing is 
that the oral anti-CGRP GPANS has shown that this mechanism blocking CGRP is effective for acute treatment. The injectable CGRP antibodies have shown us that the anti-CGRPs are effective for preventive treatment. But now with Biohaven's two publications in The Lancet, we have rigorous scientific data showing that Nurtec ODT can do both. And so if you need acute treatment, why not take the acute treatment that can help prevent your next attack? And if you need preventive treatment, why not take the preventive treatment that can also provide effective acute treatment? So that's the unified sort of approach that's beginning to emerge. And currently, you know, Nurtec ODT is under FDA review for preventive treatment. And if approved, it would be the first ever molecule, the first ever medicine in the world to be approved for both acute and preventive treatment of migraine. How does does chronic pain subside? And what's going on biochemically when when chronic pain subsides? What happens to the CGRP? Is it just used up? Or is it then uh, the the levels drop for some reason? Yeah. So if you track sort of the arc of a migraine attack, you know, for some people, the migraine attack is fading, you know, at at four hours. For other people, the migraine attack doesn't fade until uh, three days. What's similar about all of those is that you see the CGP levels rise and fall uh, over those uh, same periods of time. So it's kind of a personal, person-specific. If you're someone who has a history of getting, you know, X number of attacks, let's say four attacks per month, you kind of are in that same pattern. If you're somebody who has a history of nine or 12 attacks per month, you're, you kind of are, are in that same pattern. And, you know, the sort of the dropping off or the changing, there's a couple things that, that go on. So in the body, there's these endogenous inhibitory mechanisms. So when a pain signal starts coming in, the brain actually sends a responsive signal down to sort of uh, quash that signal, to sort of shut that signal down. Now, when it's so severe, the brain can't overcome it, and then you're going to have uh, an attack, and it's not going to be able to, to overcome it. Um, in terms of, you know, why does it fade away or how does it go, there's actually been less sort of specific studies uh, around that. You know, you could postulate that there's only so much CGRP available and it gets, you know, depleted, but nobody's actually nailed that down. Uh, it's been more uh, describing what's happening. And so to me, that's one of the things exciting about neuroscience and brain diseases is there's still more to learn. And the exact underlying reason behind that is something that we've yet to learn. Can you, how do you measure CGRP? Do you do a blood test or saliva? And is it just localized or is it systemic, the reading? Yeah. So, you know, where, where you'd really like to do measurements of CGRP is right there in the brainstem, because that's where the trigeminal nerve is releasing CGRP. So that's not been the way it's done, of course, because that would be very invasive and would require an operating room procedure and anesthesia and all this kind of stuff uh, and potential damage to the patient. So you wouldn't want to do that. So what we do instead is we measure blood levels of CGRP. And, but when you think about it, it's kind of like you're picking up, you know, pennies for a rich man's pockets. You're just getting, you know, the, the very distant uh, effects. Kind of like if you dropped, you know, uh, a drop of, of red food coloring, you know, in a swimming pool, uh, you know, it, it, it can still be there, but the farther you get away from the original drop, the, the, less, the less intense it is. There are a couple researchers who have done some work looking at saliva, um, so that's an interesting additional way that we might measure it. If it's shown to be reliable and repeatable, then that could be, you know, sort of a good way of assessing patients who sort of have a CGRP-mediated uh, migraine attack. Today, it's really done by trying the prescription that you get. And, you know, if you 
test a half a dozen attacks and something doesn't work, then your physician will probably tell you about, well, your, your attacks must be driven by something else. And so they'll try something else. Okay. So you're working on this new drug that's going to help both acute and chronic migraine sufferers. Is that right? Like how far along is it? Tell me some details. Sure. So uh, Nurtec ODT, this is the drug that came out of uh, my lab along with the chemist Gene Dubochik and a whole group of other biologists and chemists and safety scientists and and pharmaceutics folks. It's uh, a marketed product. It was approved for the acute treatment of migraine back at the end of February uh, 2020. We launched... (laughs) You know, the same week as the global pandemic shut down. So that was a, a new twist that we didn't see coming. But uh, it's been on the market now since that time. And uh, it's uh, really been making uh, a big difference. We get about a thousand social media posts uh, every week from patients who we didn't even ask to post. They're just saying, this is so different from my usual drug. I needed to tell you about it. You know, I've got my life back or I've got my career back. And so the other thing that we did in, in addition to studying the acute treatment of migraine, and the, and the difference is this, when the FDA approves a drug for acute treatment, you have to hit a two-hour endpoint. You have to show that it, it makes patients pain-free more than placebo at two hours, and you have to show that it treats their most bothersome symptom. And by most bothersome symptom, that is either nausea, hypersensitivity to light, or hypersensitivity to sound. And so if you can do those at two hours and show a statistical significant difference from placebo, then you can get an acute treatment for migraine indication from the FDA. And that's what the oral GPANs have. And so Nurtec ODT is an oral GPAN. Now, for the preventive treatment of migraine, it's a totally different story. There, you watch patients for a month before they get drugged, and you look at how many attacks, how many migraine attacks or migraine days or headache days do they have in that 30-month baseline period. Then you treat them for three months. And you look at how did that treatment change their response. And so for effective treatments like the anti-CGRPs, you get about 50% of the patients showing a a 50% or more reduction in headache days. So for example, if you're somebody who had eight headache days before, then now you have four or fewer headache days on that preventive treatment. And so currently, because we have a longer half-life, so Nurtec has about a 12-hour half-life, what that means is it, it takes um, uh, 12 hours for half of the drug to be eliminated in, in the body. And usually it's about five half-lives for a drug to be gone. So 12 times five is 60. So that's a little over, you know, two days uh, that would, it would be in your system. So we studied in a prevention paradigm, we took an oral G-pant and we studied it just like the injectable CGRPs did for prevention. But because we have this long half-life, we didn't ask people to take it every day. We only asked them to take it every other day. And with every other day dosing, they showed the same signal that you see consistent with the GPANs, which isn't surprising. It's the same underlying mechanism. So that study is what's currently under FDA review. And we're on track for a 2Q, that's this current quarter, uh, 2021 decision uh, from the FDA. And on positive data, it would be the first agent to have that dual therapy indication. So you were talking about symptoms from it and you said sensitivity to light, nausea, obviously the headache, etc. So there are different types of migraine sufferers where some will get a lot more nausea and a lot less headache, or some will be very sensitive to light, but they won't have nausea. And if so, what's the implication? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a a lot of diversity uh, in that. You know, some people, it seems to be they just, they have a certain migraine phenotype. By phenotype, I mean they have a, a fingerprint. You know, if you're somebody who gets nausea and vomiting with your migraine, it's almost every time. Or if you're somebody for which hypersensitivity to light is one of your major symptoms in addition to the head pain, 
then that seems to be just characteristic of what you have. There is some patient variability from patient to patient, but it seems like each patient kind of has their own migraine fingerprint. That is the excess EDRP is laid down on top of who they are and what their body physiology is in a way that different people experience different types of, of sensitivities. And so if you look at the International Classification for Headache Disorders, they have like these set of criteria for migraine diagnosis. And it says things like, you know, one or more of the following or, you know, one of these three or whatever, because they recognize the variability in how each individual patient can express a migraine attack. What's next? I mean, I would think you've gotten a lot of data, hopefully on NerdCheck. Um, like, what are you seeing from the data that surprises you? Or does it just perfectly align with what you expected? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the data that surprised us would be how uh, quickly it could come on with the ODT. We knew that the oral dissolving tablet, so the importance about an oral dissolving tablet is it doesn't need water to be taken, right? And so people who have nausea, they love that because the last thing you want to do if you're nauseous is try to drink something, right? So just being able to put something in your mouth and have it dissolve, that's that's a great thing. What we knew we had a faster uh, rise of drug to the maximum effect, which is called Tmax, with the oral dissolving tablet with them with a traditional oral tablet. And what that translated to us is a more rapid onset of action. So if you look at our publications in The Lancet, you'll find that we have 60-minute uh, pain relief. That is, patients went from severe or moderate pain down to mild or no pain. And we also have 60-minute return to normal function. That is, patients saying, I'm all the way back to normal. And so that occurred really quickly. And then we also saw that a single dose of Nurtec can start working in minutes, but also last for up to 40 hours with few side effects. And so that long duration of action, that 40 hours, was a, a pleasant uh, upside in, in terms of the profile of Nurtec ODT. So what's next for the, the coming year? What do you see as um, what needs to be worked on? Just keep rolling it out or, or what else? Sure. Yes. So, you know, we've, we've launched in the U.S. We're starting to do worldwide uh, work, you know, in the acute treatments. We're pending this FDA approval for, you know, preventive treatments. And really, I think, you know, the future of migraine treatment is we're showing that we don't have to think about migraine as two different things anymore. We can take a unified approach and potentially treat a single disease with a single underlying pathophysiology with a single medicine. So one disease a one treatment uh, kind of approach. And so, you know, that's sort of the potential paradigm shift uh, that's coming. Um, another future thing that's already here is that the side effect and tolerability profile of the anti-CGRPs is really in general uh, much more uh, tolerated than the old treatments. Um, so, you know, I think what uh, patients and physicians need to, to think about is, you know, particularly with patients, if, if this sounds like you, you know, if you have, you know, uh, unpredictable pain, headaches, and you also have nausea and your sensitivity to light or sound, or you get a premonition that's coming on, or you have hypersensitivity to touch or, you know, taste or smells, if that sounds like you or somebody you know, it would be a good idea to have a conversation with your doctor because unfortunately, less than half patient of patients are diagnosed. And so, you know, the important thing is to understand that there are new treatments available, these anti-CGRPs are available and people have a chance to sort of take back their life in a way that looks to be more tolerated in general compared to the sort of older treatments. And there really hasn't been any innovation, Richard, in the space 
for, for nearly 30 years since the onset of the triptych. When you say the old treatments weren't tolerated, what do you mean? What would happen? So if you look uh, at patients uh, who took, uh, you know, triptans or dihydrogatamine, you know, the early, the earlier uh, treatments uh, for, for migraine, and you checked in with them a year later, 35 to 55% of patients weren't on the drug, either because they didn't work for them or they couldn't tolerate them. So there's treatment emergent adverse events uh, and tolerability issues where they, they had um, chest and neck tightening uh, from the muscles, from the vasoconstrictive effect of the triptans, or they weren't able to think uh, clearly, or um, there's something uh, actually called medication overuse headache. Richard, this is the worst thing. This is, if you take one of these older acute treatments more than 10 or 15 times per month, it actually increases the number of attacks that you have. It's called medication overuse headache. The uh, anti-CGRPs don't have that profile. So it used to be that doctors who were prescribing triptans would say this to their patients. Let's say you were a patient, Richard. You'd say, Richard, here, try this drug. Take it as soon as you feel an attack coming on, but don't take it too often. Well, well, that would just make people crazy because now they have to decide, is this a triptan-worthy attack? Or do I try to get by with something else like an over-the-counter medicine? With the anti-CGRPs and the GPAS, like Nurtec ODT, patients aren't put in that quandary. You don't have to trade off, you know, uh, benefit for baggage, and you don't have to worry about your drug producing an increase in attacks. In fact, in our long-term safety study, we saw the exact opposite. People who intermittently used Nurtec actually showed a decrease in the number of attacks per month. And that's what led us to do the preventive trial that we wrote up in The Lancet, that's currently under review by the FDA. Yeah, that's really cool. You don't want a, uh, a pain in the head drug to turn into a pain in the ass. I guess to make a bad <laughs> there joke. You there you go, bad joke. Well, very good. Where, um, so where can people get Nurtec? Do they just speak to their doctor and the doctor will prescribe it to them? Or is it over the counter? Yeah, so it's prescription only. So, and just a, a comment, you know, individual results will vary. You know, the most common side effect among about, uh, you know, 2% of the people taking Nurtec was nausea compared to 98% of people who didn't get it. Um, and for more information, people can visit nurtech.com and find out uh, all about it. It's a quick dissolving tablet, which means you don't have to take it with water. It also means you can be discreet. Uh, I saw a scientist give a presentation and he said, did you notice what happened during my presentation? And people were like, what are you talking about? He's like, I took my Nurtech ODT and nobody had seen it. And actually migraine sufferers don't like drawing attention to themselves. They're tired of being looked at as people who are the ones who aren't carrying their weight because they miss too much work or they're not able to show up for family events. So it's really uh, an opportunity to take back control and, and it's an exciting time. So I would say if you're a sufferer and you haven't tried one of the new treatments, definitely this is a good time to talk to your doctor. There's been little innovation for 30 years. So I encourage people to do that. That's great. Well, Charlie, thank you for coming. You want to give a website or any other reference for people or just, you know, again, if you're listening and you have these problems, just ask for Nurtech. Sure. So Nurtech.com, N-U-R-T-E-C.com. Very good, Charlie. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much, Rich. Appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. 